All right, we are back, and I think there's no better way to jumpstart the second half of the program than to do our perennial favorite, the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, from which we've taken all of these items, it was a good week last week for Romeo, the world's loneliest frog. Yes, reportedly Romeo, one of the last surviving Senhueca's water frogs, may have found a mate. The reports are that Romeo has spent the last 10 years in a Bolivian aquarium before being introduced to, naturally, Juliet, a new specimen described as really energetic. Now, we, we don't really know much about the Senwecas water frogs, but we certainly do hope that this union will result in some tadpoles. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for eating sushi, in, at least in Norwich, England. Well, actually, more technically, I guess it's for eating legal sushi in Norwich, England, because reportedly a British man is denying operating an illegal sushi restaurant inside his home despite what's described as considerable evidence to the contrary. Apparently a sign above Orlando Williams's front door in Norwich reads Orlando's and offers a telephone number and web address. Neighbors said he hosted a launch party when opening in October. A Facebook page directs potential patrons to his home's address and inspectors discovered a bar and 24 place settings in his dining room. For his part, Orlando Williams is sticking to his story. All I do, I have my name on my house, said he. There is no restaurant here. Radio Parallax, we have to admit, has no information that the Trump administration has reached out to Orlando Williams to be a spokesperson. But we do think that'd be logical. And we think here at Radio Parallax that it surely must be an ugly week for the rains down in Africa with the news that artist Max Siedentopf has set up six speakers attached to a solar-powered MP3 player in the Namib Desert in order to play Africa, the 1982 Toto hit, quote, for all eternity, unquote. Siedentopf said he, quote, wanted to pay the song the ultimate homage, unquote. We have no word on the reaction of how people in Namibia feel about this. We would note that it is Radio Parallax's favorite song concerning itself with precipitation on the African continent. Alright, that's enough. Now here's a combo item. We think that um, it indicates that it was a good week last week for Dating, although it apparently was a bad week for poaching. Here's the story. An Oklahoma woman got charged with poaching after she bragged to a man she met through a dating app about a prized deer she'd shot out of season. Because wouldn't you know it, turned out the man was a state game warden. The warden, Cannon Harrison, initially thought someone was playing a prank when the woman told him on the app Bumble that she'd shot a big old buck, meaning a big old buck. Harrison asked for a photo of her with her kill, and she obliged him. 
And sadly, the next day, the wardens fined her $2,400. And it evidently was both a bad and we'd have to say ugly week last week for guacamole. With the news that the ongoing fuel crisis in Mexico may prevent truckers from shipping enough Mexican-grown avocados to the U.S. in time for the Super Bowl on February 3rd. Gas stations across Mexico have faced shortages and rationing for two weeks since the government began a crackdown on the rampant theft of gas from pipelines and started delivering fuel by tanker trucks instead. If there are limitations or delays in transport, significant losses may occur, the Association of Avocado Producers and Export Packers of Mexico said last week. Americans typically consume, wait for it, about 8 million pounds of guacamole on Super Bowl Sunday, which works out to about, if you want to do the math, 24 million avocados. And a much less funny addendum to this story, uh, we were unaware of the fact that the Mexican government has a campaign against oil theft, which apparently costs Mexico about $3 billion a year. Earlier this month, Mexico's new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, closed many of the country's pipelines, saddling dozens of cities with an acute gasoline shortage. Evidently, as a result of this gasoline shortage, people are attacking what pipelines still have gasoline in them to steal gasoline by the bucket. This resulted in a tremendous fireball explosion in which 66 people were killed near Mexico City. A piece in the Washington Post by Kevin Seif notes that Mexican's Defense Secretary General Luis Crescendio Sandoval said he dispatched troops to the scene before the explosion, but they were forced to retreat by the huge crowd converging on the pipeline to steal fuel. By the time soldiers arrived, there were more than 800 people participating in the mass theft, he said. The article notes that last year there were more than 13,000 illegal pipeline taps in Mexico. Many of them apparently much like the intrusion that led to Friday's explosion. Men with tools and blunt instruments hacking into the country's vast fuel network, followed by residents who arrived to collect the gasoline in buckets. Much of the stolen fuel eventually is sold on the black market. Last year, Mexico reportedly lost an average of 60,000 barrels of fuel to theft per day. We will be expecting a report by our Mexican correspondent when he returns to the U.S. in March. He did inform us tongue-in-cheek two years ago that he was organizing a group called Mexicans for Trump. We're keen to get his report on how anxious Mexico is to build that wall and, of course, pay for it, per the president. Except, well, now we have to pay for it, to the tune of $5.7 billion. Although he did assure us recently on his <laughs> nationwide address that the wall would pay for itself, so I'm not sure where we stand on this. Mr. Millen and I do have a sneaking suspicion at this point that, you know, that Donald Trump does tend to exaggerate some things. And in a story from Bloomberg, Shashian Nasirapur has noted that the U.S. General Services Agency has ignored a constitutional ban on extra government benefits to the president when it allowed Donald Trump to continue leasing federal property for his luxury hotel in Washington. GSA officials knew Trump's ultimate ownership of the hotel, which sits on federal property, potentially violated a provision of the lease with the government. The GSA Inspector General concluded in his report. 
It may also have violated two clauses in the Constitution prohibiting emoluments to the president from foreign governments and also from federal or state government agencies. Emoluments are payments or presents. The watchdog didn't recommend canceling Trump's lease, and the U.S. General Services Agency doesn't appear poised to do so either. The article notes that in late 2016, senior agency attorneys agreed that Trump's ownership of the hotel as president may have violated the Constitution, but they decided to punt, one of them told the inspector general. The Trump International Hotel in Washington has become one of the president's most successful property projects, generating revenues from foreign governments that rent space for events and favor seekers eager to be seen in the president's hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue, just blocks from the White House. Well, we'll see where that leads. Now, we did note on last week's program that we intended to see the documentary Dark Money, which was available on one of the pay-per-view services. I did so and was rather shocked to realize that it, in fact, has nothing to do with Jane Mayer's book of the same name. Well, not necessarily nothing to do, but it's quite independent of the other. I do recommend it highly. It focuses on the state of Montana, which had especially vigorous laws to prevent rich people buying the entire state legislature, which is done on kind of a part-time basis up in Montana. People up there serve, I think, 90-day terms every other year. But dating back to the era when the Copper Kings had more money than God and pretty much put who they wanted in the legislature, Montana's decided they needed to stop that. Of course, with the Citizens United decision, the Montana laws were invalidated, and Montana has has been trying to fight to say, no, no, our laws are still in place. And a battle royale continues. We will talk about Jane Mayer's book, but uh, probably as we suggested at the beginning of the year, it'll take us until February to get to it. But get to it we shall, because this is a very important effort, a very important subject. In that book, she does make reference to Mike Pompeo, who has managed to make himself both head of the CIA and, and then in turn U.S. Secretary of State. Pompeo owes his political success evidently to the Koch organization. He's most recently been seen acting as the Secretary of State. Well, in this case, he's acting more like a bull in a china shop as he's been touring the Middle East, knocking over glassware everywhere he goes. Anyway, rest assured, we'll have more to say about Mike Pompeo in future installments. But sadly, I'm going to have to devote most of the rest of this program to talking about ideas even worse than those coming out of the Trump administration, although that hardly seems possible at times. But before we do that, I want to go to our other favorite source here next to the Week magazine for this program, which would be New Scientist magazine, in our opinion, the world's best science periodical. Certainly the most accessible, because unlike Scientific American, they hire people who can write. One of their crack writers is Sally Adee. We've quoted from her pieces many times in the past, and we have to do it again today because her article titled How Firms Get Rich by Hijacking Brains deserves a short detour. The article concerns itself with multi-level marketing, or MLM. An expert on the topic is quoted as saying that 99% of all distributors of multi-level marketing suffer net losses which Sally Adee says is a bloodless description of the seller's plunge into credit card debt, with money transferred into the coffers of the sales firms. She refers to a podcast hosted by Jane Marie, 
who is described as a former producer of This American Life, a program we enjoy very much, Ira Glass's fine efforts on NPR. She got interested in the subject of multi-level marketing because of her family's often unsuccessful history with the schemes. Evidently, she has a podcast stretching across 11 episodes titled The Dream. It zooms out from her family to the origins of the financial model and the tendrils that is extended into every corner of U.S. politics from the Nixon era to the age of Trump. We made passing mention of this program before, the, the death of Amway founder Richard DeVos. And yes, it is his wife, Betty DeVos, that is currently in the Trump administration. It shows how the original firms, such as Amway, which she doesn't mention, were got protected themselves by getting close to government and regulatory agencies. Asked, what is MLM? Multi-level marketing. Think non-traditional firms whose products aren't available in stores, but are sold largely via word of mouth by friends and family to friends and family. Thus, its other alias, network marketing. These companies usually sell their products to salespeople at such a markup that it covers all the firm's costs, whether or not the products are sold later. The salesperson essentially becomes a customer, encouraged in the face of super tough sales targets to refocus their energies on recruiting more sellers for a cut of the money they make from sales. You're just transferring money from the later entrance to the earlier entrance, lawyer Doug Brooks explains in one episode. So, why do people fall for it to the tune of $154 billion a year worldwide? The companies have now acquired a keen understanding of the forces shaping our decisions and behavior. And some of the podcast, The Dream's Most Disturbing Insights, come when it explores the cognitive science weaponized by many of these companies to find, secure, and keep their salespeople. In one seminar, a woman called Danielle is told to sell to people living in trailer parks. They're the women who just got their paycheck and they live in a different world than the rest of us, she said. When they have money, they're afraid where it's going to go, so they use it. Research shows why being bad with money is linked to poverty. Its challenges can reduce mental bandwidth and skew decision-making towards the shorter term. There are some tried and tested tricks to get people to take the plunge. You need to find people under extreme pressure. The ensuing loss of equilibrium makes people more credulous, if not desperate, for a miracle. Next, apply tech. In the series, the podcast host has convinced Mackenzie Kassab, a fellow producer, to infiltrate a direct sales company in the U.S. The article notes that Kassab was exhorted to post on Facebook six times a day to advertise products and the company, which creates an effect where people are more likely to find something agreeable if they've seen it before which explains why people sign up as sellers even if someone they know has gotten into debt through MLM schemes. Once signed up, people are required to spend significant sums on products just to stay affiliated with the firm, often driving them into credit card debt. And part of the blame, of course, lies with the sunk cost fallacies, which we all fall for at times, in which people throw good money after bad. Plenty of studies show how our critical thinking is impaired when we commit money to something. And thanks to the loss aversion fallacy, we are then keen to pretend we made a good decision, even if it's very clear we didn't. To prevent frustrated salespeople from jumping ship, companies must then give frequent cues for the jackpot heuristic. The crazy idea that any day now they will get a direct sale that propels them out of debt. Then there is the just world theory, hinted at in the conference, which was done on the podcast, which is the idea that we live in an orderly place where we get what we deserve. 
To get rich is to be rewarded for your skills and grit. To be poor means you're feckless and undeserving. At the end of the day, John M. Taylor, the expert on multi-level marketing, was described as noting that, at the end of the day, the vast majority of sellers make no profit. Of the few who did, most earned up to $235, which is the take-home pay for a year of 15 to 20-hour weeks. Even what are described as the very few heavy hitters only make close to the average of a teacher's salary, which is not generally thought of as rolling in dough. But somebody's rolling in dough. The multi-level marketing industry in the U.S. is worth about $50 billion per year. The article notes that most economists don't study multi-level marketing and similar languor affects regulatory bodies. Few collect data on the sharp rise of these business models or how their profits align with their sellers' fates. You always thought there was something scam-like involved in these, uh, these efforts, and, well, our instincts appear to have been correct. And if you, dear listener, have any personal stories, particularly stories of woe related to your involvement with multi-level marketing, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, let's talk about tech bad ideas to wrap up our last 10 minutes. New Scientist has another article titled, Why Drones Cause Airport Chaos, to which we would add, hello, we've been talking about this for quite some time on this show. Yeah, drone technology has gotten pretty good. And yeah, drones could do some good things. But as we predicted, idiots flying drones are going to cause chaos at our nation and other nations' airports. This happened on December 21st when more than 140,000 people at Gatwick in the UK got their travel plans disrupted after drones were spotted above the airport. The article in New Scientist asks, how can drones cause so much disruption? Well, air traffic controllers don't know what a drone will do or where it will fly, so they have to be cautious once one is sighted. Well, at airports, planes typically move onto or off runways every 45 seconds. Having to play it safe when a drone shows up certainly can interrupt this flow, forcing planes to be rerouted to other airports and others to remain grounded. So far, and we emphasize so far, we've not had a collision between an aircraft, a commercial aircraft, and a drone. But the article in New Scientist notes that since they weigh at least a kilogram, a commercial drone Plowing into the wing of a plane at nearly 400 kilometers per hour has some pretty unpretty results. When they've tested this so far, they found the leading edge of the wing tore apart. Anyway, do we want drones flying everywhere in the country? We think no, we do not. We don't want to have to wait for a jumbo jet to get taken down by some knucklehead with a drone to realize that uh, we need to rethink it now. All right, further bad ideas. The cashless economy. We're again going to go to New Scientist for the article by Deborah Liu, noting how cash is rapidly becoming a thing of the past in China. Consumers have abandoned banknotes there in favor of paying with their phones in unprecedented numbers. The article in New Scientist notes that this vision of a cashless economy could well be the future for the rest of the world. Well, we hope not. China is not alone in rejecting coins and notes. Sweden leads the world as the most cashless nation as a percentage of GDP. But unlike Sweden, where physical card payments dominate, people in China are paying via local equivalents of messaging services like WhatsApp. 
QR codes for Alipay and WeChat Pay, the two most popular such apps, are now ubiquitous in China. In shops, restaurants, metro stations, and even among buskers and beggars, anyone with the app can scan a code with their smartphone to transfer money without the need for physical cards or chip readers. The article goes on to note that this Chinese model may inevitably be replicated internationally out of convenience, but whether people outside China take up the likes of WeChat remain to be seen. Data protection issues may pose a stumbling block. Hello. And earlier this year, Alipay's parent company, Ant Financial, was blocked by the U.S. government from acquiring U.S. money transfer company MoneyGram over security concerns. The question we have is, do we want all of our financial transactions to be monitored by someone? I mean, as far as we know, we haven't heard anything about web-based security breaches lately, have you? Have you heard anything about those? We haven't. I mean, the thing looks foolproof, doesn't it? What could possibly go wrong with using your cell phone for every financial transaction you make? It's not like Facebook's tracking you or anything. And how about this report from the News and Technology section in this case of the January 19th issue of New Scientist. Apparently, some teachers are now able to check whether their students are concentrating. They're doing this via headbands that read brain signals. Yes, headbands that read brain signals. Focus headbands made by Brain Co. in Massachusetts were used in a recent trial with 10,000 school children. They were aged between 10 and 17, and not surprisingly, they were in China. Over 21 days, students wore the headsets during class, and teachers could monitor their average attention levels using an app. Lights on the front of the headsets also show different colors for distinct attention levels, flagging to teachers when a student might be daydreaming. God is my witness, people. I'm not making this up. The article notes the device can help teachers identify students who may need special assistance and pitch their lessons right, said Bingcheng Han, who is the founder of BrainCo. However, notes the article by Yvonne Yi, aside from the potential privacy issues around monitoring students' brain activity, some are expressing concern over the device's effectiveness. The focus headband is using EEG sensors to detect changes in a person's brain waves. So the headband determines each person's maximum attention level via a series of mental tasks. Students who participate in the experiments had to play a smartphone game every day at home for 25 minutes, aimed at decreasing their ability to concentrate. The more they concentrated, supposedly, the further they progressed in the game. Says founder Bi Cheng Han, after a few rounds, they will learn how to stay focused. The article notes that the effectiveness of such techniques is debated. And while brainwaves recorded by EEG are used to diagnose attention disorders, they must be combined with other measurements, says Sandra Liu at the University of California, Los Angeles. It's not that accurate by itself. What's more, says Brian Anderson at Texas A&M University, a student's attentiveness doesn't necessarily assess learning. What if the students are very smart so they don't need to pay that much attention? Good question. Han was quoted as saying, Han was quoted as saying parents were informed about the products and gave consent for the trial, adding, what we really care about is for the users to reach their personal best. We at Radio Parallax suspect that what they really care about is making a lot of money. All right, we're down to about three minutes, so I don't have time to launch into the last words section of the week, 
which is a reprint of an article on TheVerge.com describing the secret war behind Amazon reviews. We'll put that off to next week. And instead, close with a discussion of what apparently is the promise of Japanese neatness consultant Marie Kondo, who evidently espouses clutter-free living in her Netflix series. Piece by David Friedman in, you guessed it, New Scientist, asks uh, some questions about this concept of neatness. Friedman asks, why are so many of us obsessed with the idea of tidiness? Research sheds little light on the question because virtually all studies of neatness and organization start by defining mess as dysfunctional. Adding, there's little evidence that anyone without servants or similar help put a lot of effort into or worried much about tidiness before the 1950s. That suggests we have little innate drive toward neatness. He suggests that perhaps our modern admiration for the super neat took root in the unrealistically sanitized homes of the faux families of early sitcoms and advertisement, just when the post-war boom era was enabling many people to accumulate ever more stuff. Author Friedman notes in his piece that he was well aware of the costs of neatness, having co-authored an entire book on it. He notes that few people have done the accounting when it comes to making rational, thoughtful decisions about how much tidiness might be enough, or maybe even too much. He notes that people with messy desks told him they'd spent less time looking for documents than people with neat desks. That makes sense. The most recent and off-used documents tend to end up at the top of the pile instead of being hidden away, according to some complex, half-forgotten filing scheme. He adds, heaps of clothes work the same way. Disorderly doesn't mean disorganized. That's a topic which I find to be of extreme interest. In fact, if this were television right now, I would pan around the room to show you the lack of tidiness associated with how we throw this show together. On the other hand, we have installed some tidiness into the system with, a, with some degree of ruthlessness. If we didn't, we'd probably be eligible for one of those hoarders programs. I do note in closing that it's my understanding that although Ben Franklin did note that uh, there was a place for everything and everything should be in its place, he himself personally was never able to get close to achieving that ideal. So, if it was a struggle for that man on the $100 bill, we, we just can't feel too bad about the ongoing battle that never fully succeeds. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. This is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are super bad, super bad, super bad. 
Super bad. Super bad.